I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey everybody, how's it going out there? Welcome back. This is season four, the coronavirus season. We're coming to you weekly from here in Nashville. Uh, I've got a neighbor grinding up trees in the background, and I, I don't have a, a tree grinder removal plug-in going here. So that's what you're you're going to hear in the back. It sounds like I'm watching Fargo or something, but it is, in fact, some trees coming down. So I guess they're doing that over there. Uh, thanks for tuning in this week. I had the honor of welcoming Chris Wood to the show from the Wood Brothers. Many of you will know him from the Wood Brothers, but also from Modesky, Martin & Wood, which is uh, a band that I got to know. Well, I didn't get to know them, but I, I got to see them and hear them a bunch in the 90s and 2000s. And they got to be really huge. They were playing like crazy improvised. I don't even know what to call it. I don't think he knows what to call it. And uh, they got as big as you can get in that world. Like they sort of looped into the whole jam band scene and they were huge huge band for quite some time. They made a bunch of great records. We're going to talk about all that stuff. And then he just like hopped over and started playing with his brother, his older brother, Oliver. And Oliver, of course, has been on the show before. And if you haven't heard that episode, it was one of the really early ones, like the fourth or fifth or something. So um, if you need some more Wood Brothers, go check out the, the interview with Oliver. That's going back a couple of years. So funnily enough, when this whole thing started, this whole coronavirus thing, I was on tour with the Wood Brothers. I was playing with Birds of Chicago, the band that I play in, and we were opening for the Wood Brothers. Uh, we started in in Arizona and went to California, and then up the West Coast. And the whole time, like the whole time it's, it was happening, when it first started, even the tour, the virus was like 
kind of a thing that we were aware of, but nobody was really taking it that seriously. And that was March, I don't know, four, I think the third or fourth is when we left. And then just like daily, things got crazier and crazier. The first couple of shows, like we had, there was like after parties and stuff and there was a bunch of people around and everyone was hanging out and those quickly got kiboshed and then there was like meet and greets with people after the show and those got kiboshed and then the shows started feeling a little weird and people you know talking about canceling and they didn't we had one or two cancel and then by the end like we got three quarters of the way through the tour and then they just canceled the the last three or four shows and so that's what happened so we all went back home uh the wood brothers both live here in nashville and uh, that was that. The, the tour ended really abruptly and quickly. And, uh, you know, everyone's been home ever since. All right. So it's been kind of an interesting week. Uh, I've been working on some new projects. I've basically been rethinking some ways of making records. Um, and I've come up with a, a project idea that we're calling the Hen House Express. That is a way that we have of recording. Some of my friends have some pretty great studio setups in their places. And so connecting, you know, connecting with those guys. There's a bass player that I play with a lot and a drummer, Gary Craig and Jeremy Holmes, who helps me out with this podcast. And uh, yeah, we're, we're doing these remote recordings. So people send us their tracks and then we add tracks to it, but it's all sort of a self-contained thing. It's called the Hen House Express. If you're an artist and you want to talk to me about it, we'd love to do some stuff for you. We're actually pretty busy. We've got a, a bunch of clients and people that are, you know, like people that have written a bunch of new material and they want a way to record it. And it's basically impossible now to get into a studio for the foreseeable future. So we're trying to accommodate that and come up with a very affordable way of getting a really kick-ass recording. So that's what we're working on now. It's kind of a new thing. It's taking up a bunch of time. So that's cool. I'm doing some lessons. Uh, listening to some podcasts when I can, you know, for me, like listening to podcasts was a thing I did while I was traveling a lot, while I was sitting in airports or driving and I did that a lot and I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm, I'm kind of down in my podcast listening weirdly, um, right now, but it seems like podcasts in general are doing well, which is cool. And this show is going to keep coming at you. My favorite podcast that I highly recommend is called the truth about vintage amps. And it's so nerdy and geeky. And, you know, unless you're a super nerdy guitar player and interested in vintage tube amplification, you're going to find nothing of interest in this podcast. But for me, it just like ticks every box. And the guy, Skip Simmons, is the guy that's being interviewed by Jason Verlindy from the Fretboard Journal. And they just talk about amps for like two hours and some cooking, but the amp stuff is the interesting stuff. But he's also like a pretty wild personality. He's kind of this hermit that just like fixes amps and and he's a bit crusty and it's awesome. So if you want a podcast recommendation, check that one out if you're into that kind of thing. Truth About Vintage Amps, highly recommended, hilarious listening. And then actually one other thing, uh, there's a guy in Nashville here, a session guitar player named Tom Bukovac, and he's been around for quite some time. He's pretty much like one of the top session players in Nashville. And he's a, he's a funny dude. I've done a couple of sessions with him actually. And he is, yeah, just like revered as one of the, the great session guys here, but he's totally invisible. Like he has no web presence. He's not on Facebook that I know of. I don't think he has a website and he just works in the studios here and he's great. He weirdly popped up during this virus with a YouTube channel and daily is coming on and like playing guitar and talking 
more talking than playing, unfortunately, but his talking is actually, the talking stuff is actually pretty funny too. So uh, he's pretty, he's pretty great. Okay, so if you want to check out Tom Bukovac, do it. It's not a podcast. You got to go to YouTube and you can subscribe to him or you can just look him up. He goes under the name 501 Chorus Echo. That's 501 Chorus Echo. And uh, he comes out with these daily things. They're like 15 minutes long and they're pretty funny. And the guitar playing's great when he does it. Sometimes he doesn't do it at all. Sometimes it's just him playing. You never really know what you're going to get, but it's usually pretty, pretty entertaining. So there you go. There's a couple things to check out. So as you well know, we are a listener-supported show here at Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We could really use your help to keep things going, especially with the amount of work going into a weekly episode. It's a lot. And so um, I'm also developing a new website that's going to come out and just be a bit more user-friendly. So that's happening as well. Uh, I could really use your help if you feel like contributing. If you're in a position to contribute, that'd be great. Uh, I know a lot of us are not, in which case, you know, sit back and enjoy but uh, if you are, if you're working and uh, you listen to the show and you dig it, uh, we could use your help. So there's a couple ways to do that. It's really easy. You can go to the website, which is stevedawson.ca or thehenhousestudio.com. They go to the same place. And go to the podcast page. It's right at the top. And that takes you to the podcast. And right near the top of that page is a way to make a one-time donation and also there's another way to go to Patreon where you can make a monthly contribution. So those are both great ways to help out the show and I would greatly appreciate that. So as you know now in season four, uh, I'm not doing long intros of the artists that I interview. I'm going to leave that all up to you to check out online. Okay, without further ado, let's get on to this week's episode with Chris Wood. Hey, Chris. Hey, Steve. Yeah, man, this is like, I just can't even wrap my head around it yet. And, you know, being out on tour with you guys was, you know, I just remember when we first got there and greeting you and we were all like totally freaked out about the tornado. And then, like, yeah. and then like gradually through the tour, it just got weirder and weirder. And then finally the last few gigs fell apart. And, and even like when we got home, I remember seeing you in the airport in Nashville and and thinking like, oh, well, this will be like, you know, 10 days or a couple weeks of quiet time. Even then, like, yeah. we didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. And that seems like a year ago. <laughs> Another uh, lifetime. Uh, how, are, how are you guys managing? You know, it's such a weird combination of, I really needed to slow down. Yeah. <laughs> I think more than I knew. Uh-huh. So. So there's moments where I'm just so grateful to be able to just, you know, not rush. I, I, I haven't played a note of music in a month <laughs> since the tour. Like I just, I've been at this for so long, you yeah. know, and on such a treadmill. And I think the whole world has just been on this crazy treadmill that's faster than anybody uh, that should be going through life. But we're just, we're all committed to it and didn't know how to step off the treadmill. That's so true. You know, and so there's that part that's a, that's this inc- weird gift in a certain way, just to show everyone what it's like to get the off of that. Of course, it drastically depends on what situation you're in, yeah. you know, and what income level you are and how much savings you have. And uh, on the other hand, it's just, it's really, there's never a good time for this, but it's shitty timing. I'm going through trying to finalize a divorce, Yeah. put a house on the market. Oh my God. Um you know, 
like all my money is tied up in, in this house that my wife and my daughter are living in uh, real near you. you know? Right. Yeah. Um, so that's super stressful. And the idea, it, it's just changed. It complicated the whole thing. And it complicated. My daughter was just about to head off to, you know, leave the house and pursue a ballet career. And oh, wow. now everything's up in the air. Oh, my God. Um, so it's just super stressful and complicated. <laughs> are, you, are you guys like as a band, are you are you looking at rescheduling stuff yet? Or are you just like wiping things off the calendar and just like not even thinking about that? No, we, we're absolutely thinking of it. But, you know, fully realizing that it might be all scrapped again. Right. So um, so from you and your crew, like your managers and stuff, from your point of view, where do things in your in your mind, like where are you starting to turn things around and like rebook things too? Well, we're, you know, we're rebooking stuff that got canceled this spring. We're trying to rebook certain things. It's been such a whirlwind scramble, so I don't know all the details of it, but uh, I know our booking agent was trying to book things for the fall. Okay. Um, We're trying to, there's, we move some dates to September. Yeah. You know, we have a tour, a package tour uh, in like late July, August that, is still who knows i I can't imagine it's going to happen but yeah it hasn't officially been canceled yet right uh so i think the main thing the 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 rest of this year is just up for grabs i mean i i kind of i'm not planning i'm not holding my breath that anything will actually happen as far as real touring Mm -hmm. but so we're just looking ahead to 2021 and just trying to book that now yeah because everybody's going to be doing that so it's just i know I'm just doing, trying to get holds. I'm doing the same thing. I'm I'm dealing with the. I was going to be doing a tour in late May, and it's gone. And then and now I'm trying to rebook it for basically a year down the road. And mm-hmm. some people are not willing to even do that. Like it's a lot of it's in Canada, and and they're just like we don't know what's happening up here because yeah. they have this whole thing of like when the when the borders reopen. I think there's still going to be this two week hold, right? Where, so if I go up to do a gig in Vancouver, I'm going to have to sit there for two weeks before I do the gig. Gosh. Obviously it's not going to work for touring musicians. So who knows what's going to happen, but yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Meanwhile, you know, Laura and I are getting a lot of amazing quality time. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And, uh, we're both, um, really into gardening, like Uh vegetable gardening. Okay. Um, so you know i'm renting this house in east nashville <laughs> yeah and uh and it's gonna have a hell of a garden well yeah it, like with the, it already had like a little tiny one and we asked the landlords like you know you mind if we expand it because the yard's really a good size and yeah and uh they're like yeah make yourself at home do whatever you want and man oh, cool. we expanded it it's huge. really <laughs> so i hope they're cool with it they're, they're probably gonna freak out like wait a minute <laughs> Is it um, like like vegetables and food that you're growing, or what? What do you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean Laura's an incredible gardener. I was a really really into it when I lived in upstate New York and had a huge garden. She wrote a cookbook, you know, like she's just a really great uh, at, at gardening and processing food and storing food and cooking food and so that part that's been a real bright spot is just focusing on that when we have the time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been hard because, you know, she's just recently moved here. And so, like, I we've, we had to get her. Trying to wrap her Canadian head around all this crazy shit that's going well, on. Well, there's that part. She's like, what the fuck am I doing in this 
insane country. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, let's relate. move back to Canada. This sucks, you know. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, just trying to get her settled here and get her health insurance. Oh, my God. Countless hours uh, on the phone and websites yep. just trying to navigate that shit. It's so crazy, eh? Plus divorce stuff. So it's been, there's been a lot of sort of stressful things like that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Such yeah, a yeah. weird weird and then meanwhile just music has been out the window completely mm-hmm. and i'm really starting to get anxious to get back into that and yeah. as a band you know just try to yeah. produce things separately that we can at least share with people like so many other bands are well let's uh let's get your mind off that for a second <laughs> okay thank you yeah <laughs> i needed a vent for half a second first um so Let's talk about that maybe to start with, because in talking to you guys, and uh, in particular, I had a conversation with Oliver while we were out on tour with you guys, and and he was telling me a bit about your um, writing and jamming and creative process on the new record, which I lo- like. I, I I love that record, and and it was great to see it kind of unfold through the dates that we did with you guys, and and uh, I was amazed to hear Oliver say that a lot of that came out of. Um, just jamming and like improvising and a lot of the actual tracks on the record were straight out of those original jams. So could you, could you maybe talk about your new studio setup and, uh, and a little bit about how you guys did that on the new record? Yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't um, a preconceived idea. The whole thing happened very organically. Uh, Although I feel like we've been creeping this direction for years and, (laughs) and it was, it was kind of our way, uh, to integrate sort of the different worlds that, you know, so much of what Oliver and I are influenced by is the same really, Mm -hmm. you know, but just through our adult lives before we started the band, they kind of manifested themselves differently, you know, and I was in Modesky Martin and Wood and he was with King Johnson. And so I feel like it's been uh, years of just slowly integrating these two things um, that we have that are different. Um, and it's a lot about process, you know, just how we come up with the music. Mm-hmm. And so little by little over the years, instead of each of us just writing things separate and then presenting them to each other, yeah. um, it's it's slowly integrated till, every, till we're, we're building the songs from the ground up, you know. And, and Jono is very much a part of that, our drummer, keyboard player, singer, extraordinaire, Jono Ricks. So on this what happened with this record is we, we already been self-producing for a couple of records. Yeah. So we knew we were going to do that. Um, the engineer we'd worked with on our last record, One Drop of Truth, uh, had a studio that he'd been leasing uh, where, where we recorded a lot of that record and he lost the lease. So we decided with him to get um, sort of combined forces and, and get a building together. So we found a building, it's like this big old print shop with, you know, all these different rooms. One was like what we call the A room is a giant uh, space that you could fit an orchestra in. You know, it's a really big size and had a nice reverberance to it. And then there was a, a smaller room that was still pretty big. It was, I think, the actual like print store originally, where they probably had all these printing machines and like Xerox machines and yep. things like that. So anyways... We, we got this place, we fixed it up and sort of got it ready. Um, did it, did it need much like as far well, as some um, sound? So, no, surprisingly little. I mean, we, you know, we spent a couple weeks, you know, making sort of sound panels and, mm-hmm. and just, you know, in our own quick 
uh, and creative way and using the materials that we had on hand. And, yep. um, you know, we did create one sort of isolation room, um, but just the natural layout of the studio already was so perfect for what we were trying to do. It was kind of like a giant big circle with a control room that sort of had access on the one side to the B room, had access on the other side to the A room, and then there was sort of a big ISO situation in the middle of that. So it, how, it didn't take a lot. How hard know? was it to find this place? It was luck. We just it just lucked out. Like it it was uh it was being rented out to a burlesque dance troupe before us. Okay. Um so it's got some good mojo in there. It has some <laughs> mojo, you know. So the big what we call the big A room was being used as a dance studio and they'd even have performances in there sometimes because it was big enough. So uh, we knew someone who had attended a class there and, you know, had informed us that um, they were giving up their lease. And so it was just a word of mouth luck thing that we stumbled upon this place. Um, so, yeah, we jumped on it and, you know, did our did our work to make it sound good enough. Mm -hmm. And then it came time to just set up instruments and just get a feel for what the place really sounded like when we play there. Yeah. Um, and so we just started by setting up in the A room close, kind of close together, no headphones, just really just jamming, you know, just to kind of feel the place out. And, uh, it was just instantly magical. Like we, we were instantly inspired. It felt completely effortless. Amazing. Brooke Sutton, our engineer just threw up quick and dirty, some microphones around, you know, no isolation. So there's a lot of bleed, but we were playing quiet. So it worked. And, um, as soon as we hit playback, we just all felt like, Oh, this is, this is way better than we ever hoped for. It just sounded, sounded good immediately. And something about the space was uh, inspiring us to play, to play well together and yeah. come up with interesting ideas. And yeah. there's all this interesting counterpoint. And so pretty quickly after that, we realized, you know what, this is how we're going to make this record. We're just going to do some sessions where we just, just improvise for hours and we'll do them in different scenarios. Like some will be set up all in this room together. Sometimes we'll have Jono separate playing drums yeah. in the other room and Oliver and I will be close together or, you know, all kinds of variations of separation and non-separation and different instruments and we came up with just hours and hours of interesting source material by improvising like that that we would have never come up with it's like it's musically you know material we would have never come up with if we'd written the songs first and and so yeah so at this point you didn't have a record ready to go you, you didn't have the material you just went in and this was like a an experiment we had zero awesome. no, this was this was the starting point and it's kind of what I've always wanted to do, uh -huh. you know, inspired by other people who've made records in a, in a similar way, sure. you know, like sure. um, Talking Heads comes to mind, uh -huh. uh, their record Remain in Light. They, they just played jams and, and recorded them and layered things. And then um, David Byrne drove around the country with that music rented a car, <laughs> this is a story I've heard, and just listened to it and then listened to the radio, talk radio, preachers, you know, mm -hmm. news, whatever, and just just came up with the lyrics and the melodies over these jams after they already existed, right? 
I didn't know that about Talking Heads. That's awesome. Well, that record is is known for that. Yeah, okay. that's the one, the record that has same as it ever was. Right. You know? Yeah. This is not my beautiful life. Yeah. yeah. That basically was inspired by like like a preacher. Sounds like, like it. he was imitating a preacher, you yeah. know, and yeah. it came from just driving around and listening to that stuff. So, um, or you know, Paul Simon Graceland, you know, he yeah. Yeah, went to friend. Africa and created all this cool source material and then wrote music over it. So it's it's not like a new revelatory thing, but I, I, was, I, don't, I don't want to jump ship here and talk about something totally different. But did you never do that with Medeski, Martin Wood? Like, was that never a thing that you went in and just like jammed until you had a record? Oh, that's pretty much how we did everything. Okay. So <laughs> that was my point in the beginning is it was like to integrate that approach yeah. into the Wood Brothers. Okay. It, it finally happened. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we had all this source material and then it was so much fun to just listen to these, you know, sometimes very long improvisations. Yeah. And uh, you know, we were I hate the word jamming. Yeah. Because I, it's, it, a, it's it, annoying. It, it implies sort of a static yeah. you know, kind of music. And uh so, you know, this is, sounds a little snooty, but I like the, it's a more accurate to say spontaneous composition because I like it. <laughs> Let's go with that. You know, yeah, you're creating sections, you know, you're, you're, you're not just doing one thing forever. You, you'd make changes, even if you're just playing one chord rhythmically and, and through counterpoint and changing your parts, you create all these different moods and different sections and you'll hear something that's appropriate for a verse or a chorus or, so that's where I had a lot of fun editing these things down into song forms. Was there was there lyrical content at this point or not really? It depended on the on the piece. Okay. You know, sometimes you'd get some ideas and then it, yeah, it really depended. I think there was maybe some very rough ideas, but some of them I really just edited down into a form first and then we really completed yeah. lyrics and melody um some kind of both of those things happened at the same time some of the editing was influenced by the form of the lyrics but we really you know had the limitation of working with the music that was already there how do you guys handle the the, the lyric melody side of things is that something you do together as well or does oliver do a lot of the lyric writing or how do you handle that um we both do it cool we, yeah we both do it and some of it, it you know, it depends tune to tune. Uh, maybe there's, you know, certain songs where he's really has a bulk of a of an idea, yeah. and then I, you know, kind of maybe help finish or tweak things, and vice versa. I'll I'll basically have one, and then he helps with certain things or mm-hmm. makes suggestions, and we kind of produce each other that way. Uh, and then some things we really just completely work together on and yeah. just shoot back versus back and forth and just mess around until it gels into something we like. Oh, that's cool. How's the process of, of self-producing been for you guys? Like, obviously, it's it's been something that you've been working towards and it's really working for you now. But um, what are some of the main things that you find are advantageous to working that way for you guys, in, as opposed to working with, say, Buddy Miller or something like that? Well... It you know you have to learn how to produce yourself. It's it's not easy, and I think the secret ingredient is time, right. um, because you know when when 
the traditional way people always think about making a record is you have to write all this material first, you know, and they always encourage an artist, you know, write more than you need for a record so that we can whittle it down to the 10 best songs. So maybe you write 20 songs and then you're supposed to go in for one session and record all that music, whether the session's one week or two months, depending on your budget budget, mm -hmm. either way, that is such an overwhelming <laughs> yeah. thing to do. And that's why people need producers because the artist just gets so overwhelmed and lost and they're too close to the material to really know what's working and what's not working. So yeah, you need a producer to, to have that kind of big picture objective ear to guide you through the process. So, so what's cool about, <laughs> I mean, the fact that we can produce together partly is luck. Like just there's our personalities, our respect for each other, our different strengths and weaknesses just happens to work. Mm -hmm. um, but what we've learned over doing this for three records is, is how to work, like how the process looks like. And a lot of it is just, you know, you work until you feel burnt out and then you just put, if you're burnt out on a piece of music, you put it away, you just stop. Yeah, and you work on later. something else, or yeah. go on tour, or write a new song, or you know. But um, do you guys have to yeah. carve out time for the process as far as your touring goes? Like, do you have to say like, no, we're not going to play for two months or something because we're going to work on this record, or do you just sort of like fit it in where you can? If, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I, we don't have the luxury of of you know we're, we're touring all the time yeah, on and yeah. off. You know, we're we're not the kind of band that has one months months and months of touring and then months and months staying at home so we're just on again off again constantly so yeah we we just we schedule in the studio days just whenever yeah. everyone's free and uh so it naturally works out that there's gaps um right. where we're on tour or you know doing something different so we get away from the music going back to the new record for a second so when you're setting up and like working in this way where you're spontaneously composing uh are you set up like a like a gig like with um in-ear monitors and stuff or are you in a more traditional studio kind of sense or like what's the actual physical setup like for you guys because the sound the sound of the record is amazing and it sounds really like dimensional and deep and I, I you know i'm curious about how you actually got there technically it, it really depended on the day yeah you know i think we did we really just did five i think it was just five you know days of just going in there and improvising okay for hours you know uh and each day we chose a different kind of setup so I remember clearly the first day was literally, like I said, because we didn't know anything. We just wanted to see what the room sounded like. We just set up like we were going to um, just play together for fun in, yeah. in a corner <laughs> of the big room. Yeah. And we knew the room was reverberant, so we knew it was best to play uh, really quiet, not to hit too hard. Right. Um, and... Uh, and then it was really fun to choose instruments and, and amps that we have never recorded with before. I, yeah. I was playing a lot with um, my Hofner bass going through a basement. Oh, cool. A, a Fender basement. I just love that sound. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it gets a very... Um, That's a thing. Yeah, it's it's almost like a baritone guitar. Right. It can be. Yeah. And then it can also sound, you know, just like a bass. So it, it has a, a versatility to it and it can break up and get naturally distorted in a nice way. And and then Oliver was using such an interesting Stella guitar that had this rubber bridge on it, so it didn't have much sustain. Wow. 
through, I can't remember what the amp is, but it's just with a beautiful tremolo on it. Um, yeah, so uh, the sounds had a lot to do with the improvis- improvisations turning out yeah. the way they did. And and the fact that we, in those scenarios, we weren't wearing headphones. So, cool. you know, we could just hear the source of the sound coming from the amp. And as you know, as Makes a huge player, difference. you play, that, it just, it, it, um, it tells you what to play, you know? Yeah. Yeah, if you can hear the source, hear the amp. I mean, that's part of the instrument. Uh, when you hear it through headphones, and it's kind of this disembodied sound from the source, it it feels very different. Oh yeah, and it's hard to play with sensitivity. So, I think that's what really made uh, things turn out well for us. So, so even when we are separated, we try to retain some of that where we're hearing the source of the yeah. the sounds. You know, the sounds had to be inspiring to end up with an inspiring uh, improvisation. And, and when you're playing upright in that situation, do you amplify it? No, that I, the upright, I mean, to get the sound I like, uh, I, I got to be isolated for that. Okay. So your preference is to always record the upright totally acoustically, obviously, right? Or is there an amp in there sometimes? Uh, I mean, it's fun to experiment with an amp. I've definitely done that, especially something like an old B15 that'll break up yeah, yeah. in a way. And and I've had great luck with that on records, even like live records, uh-huh. um, if the music's not too loud, you know? Right. But uh, but there's something to just, to just recording the upright with one mic. Yeah, man. So there's just no, no competing anything or nothing phasey happening. And yeah. if you can find the right one, uh, I don't know. That always somehow just gets <laughs> it gets the point across better than totally. having a bunch of different inputs. And so for you to get the kind of isolation that you need to get the sound you want, do you have to be in a separate room or can you just like baffle it off enough in the main room where you can still be in the room with the guys but um, be able to do your thing? Or do you have to have a physical barrier there? If there's drums involved, you kind of need a separate room. Yeah. You know? It's just, I mean, it all depends on how much bleed you want to tolerate. Um, so yeah, we tolerated a lot of bleed <laughs> and, it, and it prevented us, you know, it, it tied our hands in terms of which the is flexibility, cool which is great. Yeah. It's like, okay, we are committed to that and now we just have to use it for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we could tie this into your live situation because I, that to me was like su- such a, revelation seeing you i mean i've seen you guys before but i've never really paid attention to what you were playing through but uh seeing you guys night after night and just like having this massive bass sound i mean part part of the thing i guess was you were really the one of the only largely amplified instruments on stage because you guys are on in-ears but could you just tell me a bit about how your live sound has evolved and and what your preferences are with that yeah i don't know like i'm not a much of a gear guy uh so you know, the kind of sound that I get on stage, it's terrible. Like no one would want that. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's only to provide upright bass. I mean, if we're talking about upright bass, yes. it's a finicky, weird thing. Yeah. And there's, uh, especially if you're coming from a jazz background and particularly a more traditional jazz background, or, or you know, my hero is, is Charles Mingus. Um, and then you got your Paul Chambers, and there's all kinds of great 
and and there's this quality to the sound that those guys get uh, a lot of it has to do with gut strings yep. high action and you get this wonderful combination of you know big fat low ends but you also get all this high end string noise uh you know it cuts it's not it's it's thumpy but it's also um it cuts through the music uh and i love the way mingus can do that he yeah. can he can be so supportive as a bass player and so grooving so funky but he can also uh be so melodic and he can be the the, totally. the, the focus of the music too for me that's you know that's the sound and and it drives me crazy when people take all the high end out of <laughs> you know they roll off all the high end like no 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 that has to be there to make the instrument speak right um so it's a lot about how you set up the instrument, the mm -hmm. action, the kind of strings, the pickup. Do you use gut, um, do you use gut strings? I use gut, but they're wrapped in metal. Oh, I, okay. I used to use pure gut, um, but you know, just for bowing and 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 for a certain cut that when you start playing bigger rooms, yeah, it was better to get the gut that's wrapped in metal. So it still has the flexibility of gut uh, okay. and and a mellowness. Yeah, but. Uh, so all that's to say that, you know, my stage sound is I'm trying to provide that brightness right. for clarity and cut because I know there's going to be plenty of thump and low ends coming from the subs. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I've worked with lots of upright players and seen so many and it never sounds great to me. Like it's always sounds kind of quacky and weird with the, their piezo pickups and stuff. But yeah. you, you and Victor Krauss are the two upright players that, that – when when you amplify like you've got that figured out too you've dialed that in in such a way where it's just like a massive sound all of its own like i know it's not really the acoustic thing you're going for it's a different thing altogether but it's really it it's quite something <laughs> yeah it's interesting because i and i wonder i don't know that much about victor's setup but i know that it's that we're coming from very different places yes you know like just in terms of his action and you know the kind of sound or or the way he gets it is i think is very different than the way i get it mm -hmm. um but ultimately your ear just guides you and and there's a lot of tinkering and <laughs> you know there's no formula every bass is different yeah yeah the upright bases are a total pain in the ass you know <laughs> that the, there's nothing consistent about them even within the same bass and every single night i have to twist those pickups around on my bridge until it just comes into focus yeah and uh, there's no exact science to it yeah yeah that can be annoying <laughs> it certainly is it's just you know you just get used, used to it um so so you mentioned mingus who obviously is a big thing for you and i and i hear that in your playing and your approach um if you go way back to you know when when you guys were kids i know you 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 guys grew up in in colorado um i don't know if that was through your entire childhood but but uh can you tell me a bit about how you got into playing bass in the first place? And like, was that something you were doing when you were a kid? And, and what were your big influences? Well, the, the way I started playing bass was weird. I, I, I was into music from a young age, but, you know, I took piano lessons and played clarinet for a while. Ooh, me too. Um, but at a certain point, my brother actually got interested in the bass. And he got an electric bass for Christmas. Um, and he played it for a while and then he quickly realized he was more interested in learning guitar. Yeah. Cause that's what our dad, our dad would play guitar and was a singer 
uh, not by profession, but he was like a real. He was a folk uh, singer, right? He was a folk singer, yeah. you know, and and he went to Harvard. So in the late fifties, where there was, he was in the shit of it. Yeah, it was the famous folk scene, the Cambridge folk scene, you know. Yeah. And he was had a radio show at Harvard, and he was playing gigs with Joan Baez before she amazing became super famous and hooked up with Dylan and you know, yeah. that. so he he knows all that repertoire um and we grew up with him singing and playing around the house all the time but uh, but by profession he became uh, a molecular biologist and a scientist and, and a <laughs> sure. professor because that's what you do when you're a folk singer <laughs> exactly and our our mom was a poet a published poet so oh cool yeah, so it was kind of an interesting combination of things that I think influenced us a lot, but we didn't really realize it till we started the Wood Brothers and mm-hmm. looked backwards, you know. Yeah. Anyways, my yeah, my brother got a bass for Christmas, and then he started. He got into guitar, and the bass was sitting around, and he showed me how to play some a blues bass line, and and then I just kept going from there. All right. Uh, he he got all this great vinyl. You know, my brother's a little older, and so we were always listening to like uh, you know. You mentioned influences. We were listening to a lot of '60s rock, and there's Beatles and Stones and Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all these kinds of things. Jimi Hendrix and The Doors. But then, as we got into music, and he started learning the guitar, you know, he got interested in the source of all that music, and so we ended up with Lightning Hopkins and Jimmy Reed and Muddy Waters and you know records like that. Uh, and I remember something about those records and the sound of them were a huge influence. Were you learning to cop bass lines off those records? Like, were you learning like Willie Dixon bass lines and stuff, or was it not really a direct thing like that? Yeah, yeah, I, I was. Yeah, and then it wasn't long before I got interested in jazz. Uh-huh. And I just lucked out. I had this incredible uh, teacher early on who was this young hotshot bass player in the Denver area uh, named Rob Kassinger. And he's he's now a, he plays bass in the Chicago Symphony, but he could do anything. He, he was playing jazz gigs and funk and rock and, you know, and then ended up being an incredible classical upright player. Was he the one that got you into playing upright? Yes. I started, you know, I was in, I guess, ninth grade, I started taking electric bass lessons with him and uh and then eventually he was like man you gotta you gotta try the upright bass and i was reluctant because my girlfriend didn't think it was cool (laughs) and uh, (laughs) that's a big factor when you're that age it was yeah Yeah. and it's just such a big awkward thing yeah god really but um i i just lucked out with him being such a great teacher and he's the one that really got me into jazz you know i remember he gave me a, a cassette tape um, to sort of introduce me to jazz. And on one side was Stan Getz mm-hmm. and the other side was Thelonious Monk. Oh man. And at first I liked the Stan Getz side. Uh-huh. I'm like, I, okay, I, I can relate to this. I get this. And then over time I liked the Thelonious Monk side. And I was like, Oh, this is, that's where it's at. <laughs> Did you hear Mingus around the same time too? I'm trying to remember when I first really got into Mingus. I think that, you know, I think my obsession with him became, it was later on. Uh, I ended up going, so, you know, that that guy left town. Um, and then when I went to high school, the, the director of the jazz band just so happened to be a professional jazz, upright and electric player in the Denver area. So I had another great mentor after my first one. Wow. So 
and then I ended up in the New England Conservatory in Boston, and, and I had some great private teachers there. And I remember studying with a great jazz pianist, Jerry Allen, and she, you know, encouraged me to transcribe all this Mingus. And um, I think I was already into him. You know, he's already an influence, but I, I dove deep into it with her. And uh, and then with, and, with Medeski, Martin, and Wood, our our favorite record. If we had to choose one record that influenced that band more than anything else, it would be Money Jungle. Oh yeah, to, which is album. Duke Ellington, Max Roach, and Charles Mingus. And yeah. it's like Money Jungle became an adjective for us. There's this story that Mingus was pissed during the session because Duke, they all sound pissed. Yeah, but but like Max and Duke are so cool, you know. But Mingus <laughs> is hot headed, and and he. He couldn't do like Duke wouldn't let him do any of his compositions. This is the story. It's like uh-huh, okay. I don't know if it's just little stuff of legend, but this is what I've heard. Yeah. And so Mingus, like, he even walked out of the session, and Duke had to chase him down the street, and we got him back in there, <laughs> and they played this. And it's like Mingus is trying to mess up the song on purpose. Like he's just playing such against the grain choices, you know. But Duke and, and Max Roach are so solid like that it doesn't affect them at all. But it creates this incredible, beautiful magic tension. There that, sure is. Yeah. That influenced us as a band. And it's so, you know, if we're rehearsing a song, sometimes one of the guys like, man, do that money jungle thing. <laughs> Where you get really pissed off at the piano player. <laughs> yeah, or just, you know, like make some make a different choice. Like do something weird that's that's yeah. unexpected, you know. That's good to have an an overarching something to hold high in 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 the you know in that regard so that you can always refer back to the one thing that you guys are all shooting for. Yeah, it was like a way to describe a type of interaction because we were always a jazz band on that level even if our music didn't sound like jazz, we were always jazz in the sense that we were interacting like a jazz trio. That was the idea. Yeah. You know, even if we were doing something that sounded like the meters or more like uh-huh. the stones or whatever or booker t you know like but we'd still be interacting like a jazz trio so did you have much playing experience like as a professional musician before medesky martin and wood or were you just basically out of college at that point oh no that's all i did really i I barely i would dropped out of school so fast okay so i i took a year off after high school and i just played gigs yeah and practiced um and then when I went to the conservatory in Boston, I was one semester full time and then dropped to part time. And then the next summer I went on this crazy tour with John Medeski. Uh, the, the, one of my mentors at the school is this great drummer teacher, Bob Moses. Oh yeah. And, and, uh, this Israeli sax player had hired us to go tour Israel. And this is when Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. So it was a really weird time to be there. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was before the full-on Gulf War, but it was still, things are really tense, and everybody in Tel Aviv is worried a Scud missile was going to come over the mountains at any minute. Oh, my God. And we were there just playing weird jazz gigs, and um, <laughs> so that was, that was like one of my first tours. And then I went back to school the next year, but I literally just, I just, there were so many great teachers in the jazz department. I'm, like, my bass teacher was Dave Holland. That's amazing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. He, he was just a, a staff teacher there? Well, you know, he was touring and everything. So, But he would... Uh, the great thing about the jazz department there, there's all these heavy working jazz musicians who would come to the school to just teach and make some money, you know? Um, So yeah, Dave would be on tour with Herbie Hancock and Pat Metheny and Jack DeJohnette and stuff. And then he'd come back and all excited and pumped up and tell me about it. And then we'd play together and play duets. And that was incredible, you know, just to have that. Tell me, tell me a bit about what you would have learned from a guy like Dave Holland. Well, with, with all these teachers, I mean, I was, pretty ambitious, hardworking student, you know, and I think they saw that I had some talent. And so it would start off more traditional, like, okay, learn this song or transcribe this or whatever. Most of the time, like with Dave, it just developed into pretty quickly into like, all right, let's just play a duet. And we just trade solos. And I learned so much from that, you know, uh, just watching him play and, you know, learning from it, being in awe of what he could do. But just as important, I also learned what I didn't want to do. I was like, I, I realized I admired him so much, but I also knew that I didn't want to sound like him. Mm-hmm. Like I, my voice lay somewhere else. Um, That's a really good lesson to learn. It was huge. You know, and then Jerry Allen, who uh, was an incredible jazz pianist and touring, working with all kinds of great musicians. Um, at the time, I think she was, at one point, I think she was a partner with Steve Coleman and part of the whole MBA scene. And, anyways, she was such a incredible, irreverent soul, and and had me, you know, transcribing Mingus. But eventually, for an hour lesson, she would just say, "Okay, improvise, completely free, ready, wow. go. You have one hour." Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> it was like, oh wow. And I just, you know, by the end of the hour, I'm sweating and you know, just trying to figure out every possible sound I could make on the instrument to keep things interesting. And wow. And she would just say, you did it. Hours up. <laughs> nice job. And that was the lesson. That's quite a lesson. <laughs> it was really intimidating, but it taught me something. I'm not sure I can articulate what it was, but, uh, I get it, but yeah. I learned a lot and it was incredibly humbling, you know? Mm-hmm. So was Medeski at the conservatory as well? Uh, well, so John's a little older than me, uh-huh. same, same age as my brother, okay. four and a half old, years older. And so he'd already graduated okay. uh, and was still kind of living in some in Boston and some in Brooklyn. And, um, but we met, you know, we got both hired for some gigs and, and that's kind of how we met. And, and I don't know, I think I was so young and I, he just seemed so much older to me at the time, but so he recognized something in me that he related to and and he was basically was he looking to start something like what you guys did or or was did it just evolve i don't think it was that clear yet like we moved so we moved to new york uh like i think 91 summer of 91 
And it's crazy. It's right when Rudy Giuliani uh, became mayor and he was trying to clean up the streets and there's riots and, you know, there's skinheads fighting the, the cops in Tompkins Square Park in the East Village. <laughs> and we're trying to move into an apartment like a block away. It was such a weird, yeah. amazing, magical time. Uh, that whole place was in, in transition. But what made it special was that all the musicians at that time, it seemed like the, the majority of musicians who were kind of either in the jazz or weird downtown new music scene, they all lived there and all Amazing. the rock musicians and everyone lived in the East Village in just this, this you know, few blocks radius. And so you couldn't walk down the street without seeing all these great musicians that you knew. And the next thing you know, you'd be sitting having lunch. And it was such a scene really great scene and john and i got this apartment above a laundromat we could play all the time it just was this golden period where all the musicians were close together we could play all the time we were constantly jamming with different people and playing in all these different bands and everyone was so supportive and there was clubs all around there so yeah that was a really fertile time and that's where Modesky martin and wood started how long was it until you guys did notes from the underground Oh, not long. Uh, I feel like it was, I feel like we recorded that sort of late, late in the year in 91 or winter of 92, something like that. And had you guys been gigging as a trio already? Um, yeah. Yeah. Around New York city, we've been gigging. Um, and then just a few little regional things, but it was mostly yeah. in New York because we were also, you know, Billy Martin was in the lounge lizards and oh, he'd be right. on tour okay. a lot. And John had other, so everyone was kind of doing their own thing. I connected with Mark Rebo and I was touring with Rebo. Yeah. Rebo was uh, like a real champion for you guys, right? Like he really encouraged you to, to get far out and really like push your thing. Right. He was a huge mentor for me personally. Like, I was in this band and uh, just, he was such a quirky, interesting character, but such a, such a strong voice. Like he's one of those rare guys who could, he can be a great session player. He can play any style of music, but he always sounds like himself. Yeah. And, um, and always searching for ways to make sounds on his guitar that, you know, were new and interesting. Um, but yeah, a huge influence because when he was trying to make his own weird music, he described the goal to me as like, it's like you're trying to make your own ethnic music. You know, it's like he was trying to make a record sound as if you went to Tower Records and you're looking through the world music section to some field recording in some unknown country that you didn't know anything about. Right. And you discovered this weird music. It's like from another time and another country and another culture. Like in a way, that's what he was trying to do. Yeah. And was he was he mostly like doing stuff with Zorn in those days or was he doing like solo stuff and just like playing with everyone? What was his But everything. I mean, he was he was at that time he was trying to cultivate his own yeah. uh solo work and and um to, you know, tour with his own band. But he'd done, you know, of course a lot of work with Tom Waits and Elvis Costello. Oh yeah, right. He would have done that already, right? Yeah. I mean, he's such a Oh god, he's such a great rock guitar player but he's also a great jazz player and uh, yeah. And then doing all the crazy stuff, John Zorn. And he was definitely like encouraging for you guys as a, as a group though. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, everyone thought we were crazy. Really? Why? Well, you know, at that time, no, people like people knew that there was something there. Um, yeah. But you know, we didn't have a record deal. 
um, early on. And so we were just playing gigs around New York and trying to figure out what was next. Everybody in the jazz scene and in that whole downtown scene, they all made their money really by touring Europe. Oh, okay. That's where the money was. You know, if you get into the festival circuit there, but you need a record deal, you know, you need something to get your music over there before a tour could be booked. Yeah. We didn't have that. And so we figured, well, if all these like rock, rock bands drive around the country and they play these little rock clubs for the door. <laughs> that's basically what we were doing in New York city is just playing, you know, the knitting factory and uh-huh. CBGB's gallery rock clubs for the door. Yeah. Yeah. So why not just do that in every town? Was there anyone in New York doing anything comparable to what you guys were doing? No, I think the, what really maybe sparked that idea is the knitting factory. Yeah. Uh, Michael Dorff, who sort of owned and ran the knitting factory at the time, tried he he booked this crazy tour uh with like four or five different kind of i don't even know what to call you know rock ish bands <laughs> that mm-hmm. with a more somehow creative edge on one way or the another he put them all on a tour bus and for 28 days they played 28 shows one show every night wow and it was just this disaster of a overcrowded <laughs> bus you know, and, and just them playing for the door, you know, all around the country. And it was really intense. I mean, everybody on that tour, I think, suffered some um, trauma. <laughs> PTSD. Yeah. And both John Modesky and Billy Martin were both on that tour playing with our friend Orrin Blowdout. And, and I think it was a little light bulb moment because they're like, you know what? We could do this if we just get in a van. With way less people. Yeah, with our own, you know, in a, in a better civilized way and be in control. Yeah. So for, for the very beginning, it was all about doing things our own way, being completely independent. Did you have an agent or anything or were you just doing it all yourselves? We started doing everything ourselves. Yeah. Like Billy's dad had a had a cool little basement set up with a Xerox machine. And <laughs> he was he was really into like Apple computers like early on and, you know, even with music software. And so it was kind of a good little home base to create mailing lists and yeah. print posters. And we got into silk screening t-shirts and we were just doing everything ourselves, booking the gigs. And how did it go right off the bat? <laughs> you know, we were just three guys in a van and sometimes in the early, early days, sleeping on people's floors. Sure. But we were young and, and we yeah. didn't know any better. And, and it was ours. It always felt like, okay, this is challenging at times, but it's this is completely ours um and it the word of mouth started pretty quickly like we started attracting people who like to tape shows and tapes Mm -hmm. are being passed around um and then we found out that you know these guys in a band called fish started showing up to our shows Mm -hmm. we'd never heard of them they were huge but we were clueless we were living in another universe right right and, you know, like, it's like some, some guys backstage has his name is Trey and he's in some band called fish and he likes our music, you know, and we didn't know anything about it. And then we realized, Oh my God, these guys are a huge band. <laughs> that whole scene, what, you know, like with those kind of bands that you guys sort of were associated with, like, was that even something that you were aware of at all? No, it was okay. the weirdest thing for us. We were completely living in this musical universe that to us was, you know, Sun Ra and James Brown and Sly mm-hmm. Stone and Mingus and Monk and, you know, just this combination of 
blues and R&B and jazz and free jazz and contemporary classical music, like all these kind of influences that even though the music could be funky, it, those were the, all these, there's this weird mix of influences for us. I never listened to the Grateful Dead. I was completely ignorant about that whole scene mm -hmm. and about Fish or anything that would, people would call a jam band these days, which yeah. didn't, that term didn't exist back then. Right. So it was so bizarre for us when Fish started playing our CDs at their concerts, like on <laughs> really? intermission. Yeah. And all these Fish fans showed up at our shows. And it's like there was this bizarre, I don't know how to describe it. It, it was as if they're looking up on stage and seeing us in relation to you know, the Grateful Dead and Fish and that that kind of scene and music. And we didn't, we're completely unaware of that. We're just thinking we're expressing things that are like Sun Ra and Sly Stone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, was, well, it wasn't easy. Like, we didn't know what to make of it. And it was this weird blessing and a curse. Like, I, I think it ultimately sort of broke up the band and, and it's really weird to say, but mm -hmm. we had an identity crisis after that. Yeah, I can understand that. I like, like by the time I heard of you guys, so I was in Vancouver at the time, and by the time I heard of you guys, it was like Shackman era, and I went to see you, and it was like full on like people getting down, and like it wasn't like a jazz show at all. It was like a full on like crazy party atmosphere, and and like heavy like really pumping it was like yeah geared toward a young audience and stuff like that so so was that something that was certain members of the band were pushing more than others to be a part of well i think at that time that was naturally what was coming out of us uh -huh. i mean it was natural for us to play groove funky music you know billy what was great about billy martin is uh he was so good at, you know, very influenced by the early hip hop yep. and, you know, rock and R&B. And, but he had a certain kind of feel like he didn't hit hard. It's like Clyde Stubblefield, super funky, but doesn't hit very hard, you know. And he interacted like a jazz musician. Like he didn't, he wasn't just a loop guy. He, he really interacted. So we could play the way, like I said before, like a jazz trio played together and interacted together. And yet what he was playing is really funky. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we all were influenced by that music, whether it was James Brown or organ trio, funky stuff, Jimmy McGriff, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. It was natural for us to do that at the time, even though we were always exploring weirder, different ways to approach it um, sonically. Yeah, the records changed too. Like the records got more experimental and sonically, um, you know, there was more electric stuff and more avant-garde sounds going on. Was, yeah. Was that a collective thing where you guys were just sort of shifting and trying things out? Or was there any pressure from, I think you were on Blue Note for most of that time. Was there pressure from the label to do something like more commercial or something? Uh, well, you know, we did this record Combustication where yeah. we had a DJ Logic, um, Jason Kibler, uh, and... It was, it was a really interesting record where we, we used two different engineers. And one was the guy that we'd been using up to this point, um, who was more of a jazz engineer. And then the other guy, um, Scott Harding, was more like a, uh, he'd worked with Wu-Tang Clan and was more of a hip-hop. But he'd also been mentored by Teo Macero. So he had a 
really interesting combination of jazz sensibilities in the studio yeah. mixed with the hip hop sensibility. Right. So we had this really interesting, and then he brought, helped us bring in DJ logic and incorporate some turntable on that record. So that record was this kind of beautiful combination of the jazz influences that we'd come from mixing in more of folding in the hip hop stuff and both sonically and, you know, musically the next record we made, we put together our own studio in Brooklyn. And the first song was just this crazy all over the place, punk rock, weird <laughs> sonic, you know, mood piece. And, uh, and there was a much weirder record, but it's in some ways it's our favorite. And, uh -huh. and, you know, so it, and it got us more of like an indie rock crowd, but we called that record, the dropper because we were convinced that we were going to get dropped from Blue Note. <laughs> Everyone, of course, took that as like some kind of drug reference. But right. we, we, honestly, we just yeah. called it the dropper. It's like, yep, this is it. They're going <laughs> to get rid of us. And they, they kind of did want to get rid of us. But Why? Weren't, weren't you one of their top-selling uh, artists at that time? Well, it, you know, it was this weird thing where, yeah, we were getting some success doing the weird thing that we did at the same time, the whole music business as a whole is imploding because of the internet age taking over. And, uh, but along comes Nora Jones. So just when we thought like we, we managed to do another record after that uninvisible. And then after uninvisible, they were pretty much done with us. They're like, you know what? Cause we'd gotten a, a, a pretty decent deal considering the kind of music that we were mm -hmm. playing. And so for every new record, our guarantee went up considerably and so <laughs> by the time we got to that point in the deal they, they were like okay this is not worth it we're going to drop you guys and things were shifting in the industry by then a bit i guess too right yeah absolutely there's so much change happening uh and and you know so they asked us to take a reduction and we basically refused we're like that you know what we're feeling like we're, we have an independent spirit we'd rather do this on our own than take yeah. a reduction yeah um and then Nora Jones won seven Grammys and became the biggest thing on the planet. And suddenly they were flush with cash. And oh. so they said, you know what, why, why don't you do one more record? And so we did. And we tried for the first time hiring a producer, uh, John King from the Dust Brothers, who we'd loved his work on like some of the Beck records, like uh -huh. Odelay. And uh, he produced uh, End of the World Party, just in case, yep. which... Which I've heard has had a little resurgence because of the, the pandemic world we live in now. So, what was that process like? Like working with him, was it was it okay? I think by this point, the band, you know, like it, it was. There were some things that were cool and and uh, interesting and different. I was I was reluctant to give up control. I, I felt like we uh -huh. just had our own little universe, and if we're at the dials, things always turn out more interesting. Yep. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it's like, well, we could, we have the budget where we can afford someone and we've never done this before. So let's try it. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, like everyone's getting older. People are starting to get married and have kids. And, and you know, when that happens, all of a sudden you're not just three young dudes in a room together for hours and hours and hours. There's like schedules and other <laughs> you yeah. know, things. Things change. Yeah. Uh, so I think there was a certain reliance on the producer to kind of create some structure you know uh where we were 
we kind of had lost that youthful, um, you know, there's no time limit. We can be in the studio forever until something interesting happens. That, like that, that wasn't going to happen anymore. It's like, all right, we have a certain block of time during the day yeah. and, and we'll play as long as we can. And then at the end of the day, we'll rely on John King to put it together, make something to put, Yeah, to put, yeah. you know, so there was a little bit of that back and forth going on with him. Yeah. Billy, Billy, I think, had a his first child is born at that time and so he was a little there was a big part of that record where he was unavailable right. john and i went out to la and actually just stayed in john king's house and finished some of the material overarchingly like it's a huge subject obviously but but would you approach writing music for that band collectively generally or was it was it always spontaneously composed music or were you like coming up with little ideas that would turn into pieces or what was the, what was the general philosophy of that band? Or maybe it shifted. I don't know. Yeah, no, we called them seeds. Okay. Uh, and, and it's, it's really no different than what the Wood Brothers just did on this last record. Essentially. It's like, there'd be a lot of improvising and recording improvisations. And, um, but there'd be these real magic moments that would happen during those improvisations. And, uh, and those, we'd call seats, you know, for, for a composition. It's like, there's something magical about this. Why is it magical? Is it, you know, and what should happen next? Like that could be an A section and it needs a B section or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, it, a lot of it was done collectively mm-hmm. and through trial and error and experimentation, uh, improvisation, um, whatever worked, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but it was, it was just all done by feel. You know, it was not an intellectual process. It's like, it's weird how that is because when something is good, everybody knows it. Yeah. Even if you can't explain why it's good, right? It, it just, feels, it, it feels, feels like the thing. good. It's, it's mm-hmm. sonically, rhythmically, melodically interesting. Were you guys generally like a collective in that way? Like everyone was, was sort of like making those decisions together as a band in when, when you guys were really ticking as a band? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's what made the Dropper record so interesting is it was, we had our own studio. So it was just like, we were kids in a candy shop and we, we <laughs> just were, we were recording. And then at that time, you know, it was before we were using Pro Tools and, um, and we we're still cutting tape and doing things like that. So, but uh, what had come out was the mini discs. Oh yeah. Even on the portable mini disc, you could, you could try out little edits. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember even being on the subway in New York on the way to the studio and I could make edits on my mini disc just to see if they would work, you know? Right. Uh, and then we'd cut tape, but it was nice to experiment with that beforehand. And I was always into that. I was always into the editing. I, I, I love doing that still. Did you have downtime between being in Medeski Martin and Wood and, and hooking up with Oliver? Oh God, no. It was just straight in. It was this long, intense crossfade where I knew, um, were, like were things going sour in the band a bit? Well, not really sour. I mean, it was more like, I think, you know, at least one of the guys was definitely wanted to get off the road. Mm-hmm. It, it made me anxious. Cause I, I was, I thought, well, this is how I make all my money. Like, right. <laughs> what am I going to do now? And it just so happened at the same time, Oliver approached me because we reconnected, but we did this weird gig where his band 
King Johnson. opened for Medeski Martin Wood. Yeah, so King yeah. Johnson opened for Medeski Martin Wood, and Oliver sat in, and it was this amazing aha moment of not only how good he is, but how there was a connection there. There's such a chemistry immediately. Um, so, so right around this time, where where I think MMW as a whole was like, well, okay, eventually this thing's going to slow down, and we're going to have to get off the road. Oliver came along, and and. I was like, well, maybe this should be the next thing that I build up. Um, and it was kind of like starting really from scratch because totally. I actually saw you guys in Vancouver, I don't know, like right around the first record coming out. And like there was not many people there. It was like a it was like a small little club that, you know, local bands were playing at. And so you guys were kind of slogging it out, out there for oh, a little completely. while. Completely. <laughs> it was it was such an ass kicker for me because I went, you know, Building up MMW was intense. You guys were as big as you can get in that world. Well, like, yeah, it was, and, and it was, you know, it was a lot of work to get to that yeah. point. Years and years touring first in the van, and then we we bought an RV and basically lived in this RV together, touring all over the country and building wow. it up. And then finally, we got to the tour bus. Yeah, you know, and we had a good crew, and we didn't have to do all of the grunt work that we'd been used to doing for so long. Yeah, and then. When I start with my brother, you know, I'm still doing that with MMW, but then my brother and I go on tour and it's just literally the two of us in my minivan playing <laughs> tiny little clubs yeah. and cafes or whatever. How hard was it to connect connect with the MMW audience? Oh, to connect with them? Yeah, like, I mean, ha- were they not coming out right away? Like, when it seems to me like I saw you guys in, I don't know what year it was, but it was like near the end of Medeski Martin and Wood and it was like you were filling massive clubs and then you went to the wood brothers and suddenly you were playing for like 20 people oh, in Vancouver. oh yeah because anyway. we were doing you know i was we were doing something that was completely unrelated musically to yeah. you know i think at first some mmw fans would check out the wood brothers out of curiosity but it was pretty clear that we weren't <laughs> we weren't gonna jam right we're playing songs yeah i knew when people started telling me after wood brothers shows in the beginning, there was a lot of MMW fans who were just checking it out. But eventually, we were getting fans who'd never heard of MMW. And that's when I knew yeah. we were actually getting somewhere. What, like the first few years, I guess, and the first couple of records, there's no drummer either. So it literally is just the two of you. Huh. Yeah. And then there was a period where you used uh, a friend of mine from Winnipeg. Uh, Christian was was playing drums with you. Yeah. Um, uh, but how long were you going as a as just a straight-up duo? Just just you and Oliver in the in the van. That was like a good four or five years or something, or was it not yeah. that long? Yeah, I got. I'd have to think about it. I mean, basically started in two thousand five, touring in two thousand six. Um, John has been with us. I feel like I think since two thousand eleven. So yeah, it wasn't until two thousand ten that we were touring with a drummer at all. To me now, it just seems like you've found this perfect blend of like writing really catchy, great songs but also being able to incorporate some of that free uh improvisational element that you basically cut your teeth on and did for so long for so many years of your career but it seems like now there's like a kind of a a mix between like the early wood brothers stuff is really song oriented but now there's like enough there's enough freedom in there too to like keep that side of you happy i would think right yeah definitely i mean um from the beginning i always had this weird uh, like fantasy bands when, when Oliver and I first started, you know, he, he was coming, he was really steeped in 
lot of blues. Um, and in the way that I was uh, steeped in, you know, jazz, yeah. he, he was really had a handle and a feel for, uh, you know, like Delta blues and, and some great and Chicago blues, things like that. So I had to sort of, in the same way that people put together fantasy football teams, um, I thought, well, what if Charles Mingus and Robert Johnson started a band? Like, mm-hmm. what, what kind of stuff would they come up with? And um, That's a cool thought. I'd like to see that band. Yeah, it was just like a weird thought experiment, you know. I mean, you could come up with a million combinations that sort of invoke the same thing. But uh, just the idea of... <sighs> There's, there's so many great songwriters and there's a million great songs. And then there's amazing music, instrumental music uh, of all kinds. It's just inc- there's so many rhythmically and sonically interesting types of music out there. Um, I, I just wanted it all to combine together. Mm-hmm. You know, why can't the great songs, do they have to be all on a three chords? I mean, why can't three chords in the truth somehow mix with Fela Kuti. Yeah. You know, like, why not? Um, so that, that was kind of always my goal with, I don't know, the, my passion with the Wood Brothers is, I mean, it, the song comes first, absolutely. Like the imagery and the lyrics, it's poetry and it's so important. But, but you know, the challenge is, can you make the music just as interesting without taking away from that? Yeah, it seems like that it's really evolving in that way, too. It's a really interesting progression through all your all your records. The last thing that I really wanted to ask you about was was like your session work. Was that never something that you considered? Like you've always been a band guy. You've always been a touring guy. Did it never come up where you could just be in New York or be in Nashville and do sessions because you've done some great ones uh but it's just like you're always on the road i guess uh i i do like doing sessions although you know i've my my hearing has gone downhill mm-hmm. um quite a bit i struggle with that and um it, doing sessions it's hard being in the studio is is hard on your ears people always think uh, of the live which which also can ruin your hearing too, depending <laughs> on what kind of choices you make, you know, but being yeah. in the studio and headphones, you can ruin it just as fast. I, I don't know. I, I, I always loved it though. I loved taking someone else's song and trying to elevate it as best I could. Um, so I do enjoy that a lot, but I think at the end of the day, I just, I like to create mm-hmm. from scratch and something about being in a band and being completely in control of the creative direction just outweighed anything else. And, and I was busy with it. So it, it right. just became a time issue too, that, you know, recording our own records and touring, there's no time left <laughs> yeah. for, yeah, for a session guy career. You know, like right. I just, it really came down to that a lot of the time that I was too exhausted. You know, I'd put everything I got into my own work. So you've done some great ones though. Like, um, can you tell me a little bit about doing that record with Chris Whitley? Uh, that was it was it's perfect day that you're on, right? Yeah, yeah, like that's that. that's one of my favorite things I've ever been a part of. Really, um, he was something else, eh? Just the way it turned out and the way we did the record was how'd you do it? Such a weird. Well, so it, it, Craig Street was producing the record, um, and we got together to rehearse. It was going to be a record of all covers. We knew that, and Craig Street set up a rehearsal the day before we were supposed to go into the studio. And we literally just had like a day, maybe a day and a half booked mm-hmm. at the studio. Cause we were going to do it all live yeah. to two track. 
Did you know Chris at this point? I did. Okay. I did a little bit. You know, I knew him through my friend Dougie Bound, who's a great drummer who played with him. Okay. Uh, anyway, so Chris, you know, he was a quirky guy. He was yeah. really he had some emotional challenges and uh, and and sort of an insecure person. And and so rehearsing these tunes is really difficult. The idea was he was going to teach us these arrangements and he just had this weird thing of like, if, if I'm trying to follow along and if I made a mistake, he would stop and apologize as if he'd made a mistake. And it was just so awkward that I, I got frustrated. I'm like, how the hell are we even going to get through this? You know? And, and so finally I just told Chris to just play the song by yourself. And I recorded it on my, I think I had a little disc man or something. And, and then I just went home that night and I learned all the material and then, and this was with Billy Martin and Billy just, he didn't care. He's just going to improvise and react to yep. whatever. And he's so good at that. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to know the songs since I had to follow Chris harmonically. Of course, I wanted to really understand where he's coming from a little more with the arrangements. Well, he's also, he's also like in that way that Joni Mitchell plays where like, there's so many options for how you interpret what he's doing. Yes. Like, it's not like he's just playing a G chord. It's like, that's a really good analogy. Yeah. Like Joni Mitchell and the way that she somehow her approach worked with those jazz musicians. Like when she did the Mingus record yeah. with Jocko and Wayne Shorter and Peter Erskine. Yeah. Um, no, Chris was definitely like that. It's, things are very open for interpretation. And so the session, it just was, I don't know. It was just magical. Like we're all, it's actually really not that different than, this latest Wood Brothers record that we've mm -hmm. been talking about, Kingdom in My Mind, like we were all set up in the same room together. So I was playing upright, but the music's pretty quiet. So yeah. all I needed was some baffles. Otherwise, I'm right in the room with Billy and Chris, and Chris just has a little plexiglass thing around. So, but we're, we're all there. We're all feeling the music from the source. Yeah. And it's completely improvised, really, even though I, I kind of learned his general maybe where he was going to go next arrangements <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from the yeah. recordings I'd made, you know, enough to like not completely screw it up. But otherwise it was really just all done by feel like a, like an improvised jazz record. And would you do like just a couple takes of, of, of every song? Like I can't imagine doing yeah. 10 takes would make it any better. Yeah. We just try to get through each song. I, I don't remember exactly, but maybe two or three times the most. And it's just sonically, you know, it's just sonically it's turned out great too. And yeah. there's space and uh, surprises and yeah. And his voice is just recorded so intimate and beautiful. Yeah. And nobody plays plays steel guitar like he does. Yeah, I, I got to do a bit of, um, I had a bunch of shows with him back. Um, I don't know what year that would have been, but uh, I got to see him so many times. He was actually, like when I, when I was doing shows with him, he was probably the loudest solo artist I've ever been around in my life. Like it was so <laughs> fucking loud. It was unbelievable. Well, I think that's, that's what was special about this record is the record he did right before that was uh, again, Chris street produced and they just went up to this cabin that he was in and just recorded him solo. Yeah. Uh, and it's called dirt floor. Dirt floor. I love that record. Yeah. Great, great record. And I yeah. think that's, Coming off of that record, it gave yeah. uh, Craig the idea, like, hey, let's do something, but I'm going to get Billy and Chris, and we'll just keep it real quiet and intimate. And I tell you, like, he did some versions of, you know, they're all covers. And, like, there's a Jimi Hendrix cover of Drifton. Yeah. I think it's better. It's like, for me, it's the definitive version of that song. Yeah, it really is. 
or or like the Doors' "Crystal Ship." Oh yeah, or that's on he there. He does too. two different Dylan songs. Um, you know, it, but just beautiful classic versions of the songs. Yeah. One other one I wanted to ask you about the Iggy Pop record. <laughs> how, the, how the hell did that happen? Um, John was was producing that record. Okay. And I think he was driving around in his car and he heard us on the radio, which is weird because we You're weren't much of a radio. Uh, no, um, Modesky M- Martin Wood. Yeah. Because uh, I'm trying to even remember what year that record was recorded. Yeah, I don't remember like either. Mid-90s or maybe. Oh, was it that long ago? Okay, I thought it was a 2000s. It was in the 90s. Okay, okay. Yeah, he, he heard us on the radio and he thought, oh, these guys sound interesting. Like, I wonder if they're they would be the rhythm section with Iggy, like what that would be like. And uh, yeah, so the next thing we know, we're recording with Iggy Pop, some cool, weird, giant, cavernous studio that used to be like a Jewish vaudevillian theater and Avenue C, Alphabet City in, in Manhattan. And yeah. It was just such a, the whole thing was just so quirky and weird. And, I, you know, I, I don't know if Iggy Pop's fans, they probably hated it. Because it was, you know, Iggy, Iggy was sort of doing part of his personality. He's such a smart, well-read, yeah, soft-spoken right? guy, you know, yeah. like uh, totally counter to his stage image. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I mean, I, of course, knew about him, but I can't say like I listened to a bunch of music or was into the Stooges. And I just, it was just a, I was in there born at the wrong time or something. But yeah, so I kind of got to know him through the session. And uh, where you know the music was much mellower that we were doing, and and his voice and the way he was singing was almost like spoken words sometimes. And then we got hired to do this crazy gig with Iggy Pop. It was in Paris for uh, Europe's version of HBO. It's like Canal Plus. Yeah. Um, they were doing an, an hour-long special, like a musical special, where Iggy Pop was singing jazz. And it was him and Chrissy really? Hines from The Pretenders. Yeah. Um, we were the rhythm section. The Modesky uh, Martin Wood. Johnny Depp was friends with Iggy. So he came by and played some guitar. <laughs> sure. It was such a bizarre thing. And Iggy Pop's singing like crooner, sort of Frank Sinatra wow. jazz. So it's <laughs> Wow, <laughs> and and he's kind of great at it, you know. Uh-huh. Like he's, he had such so much personality that it, I don't know. He was just interesting, yeah. always to listen to. And when you're recording with him, like, would he have fully formed songs, or was there some improvisational elements, or was it pretty structured? He he had songs, but I think they were look, looking to us to create some kind of different feel or vibe. Okay, just because the way we played. I mean, yeah, it's like when John Schofield for we first worked with him, he just. It's like, okay, I have these songs, but I want you guys to do what you do to give it that sound. That's cool. So you're not just being hired like as a session guy. Oh, you're, not you're at all. No, we your, were being yeah. hired to, to bring our sound with us. That's a killer record too, that a go-go record. But that, yeah, that started a long relationship playing with him. Well, amazing, man. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for doing this. I know I've taken yeah. up a bunch of your, bunch of your day here, but. Uh, thanks, Steve. Yeah. No, it's nice to just temporarily forget about what's happening (laughs) in the world and talk about old times yeah yeah good to talk to you all right take care all right thanks for listening everybody i really appreciate you tuning in this week that was my conversation with chris wood hope you enjoyed it i had a blast talking to him and bringing the interview to you and we will be back next week for another gripping episode of music makers and soul shakers we'll see you then over and out 
Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.